Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. April is National Donate Life Month, and today we're going to talk about the process of kidney transplants right here in the islands. But first, before we get to the kidney, we're going to talk about something on the outside, the skin. There is an exciting dermatology conference coming up. Dr. Shane Morita and Joe Ramos are here to tell us a little bit more. Shane, you've been on the show before. Joe, I think you have too. You're the program director and professor of cancer biology at the UH Cancer Center. Now, this conference is targeted towards people who either have know someone who has had, or are concerned about melanoma. Tell me a little bit about melanoma, why we should be worried about it, and who that you know has had it that, you know, I mean, Bob Marley had melanoma and died of metastatic melanoma. Why should we worry? Well, melanoma is a really common cancer. Um, In the United States, over 75,000 patients will be diagnosed uh, And, you know, it's a problem in Hawaii. It's very important uh, to update the public as well as our healthcare providers because it, uh, there's so many advances. Um, Since 2011, there have been seven new drugs that have been approved by the FDA, the last one being in December 2014. And, you know, very prominent people, as you had mentioned, have have passed away from melanoma, including Bob Marley in 1981, as well as recently Dr. Erwin Schatz. Um, And you knew him personally. Right. He was a a professor, a fantastic physician, Unfortunately, he passed away this this month of uh, melanoma, and uh, he was involved in teaching. I, I learned from him some clinical skills as a student here at, at the medical school. Now, melanoma often makes people think, you know, there's different types of skin cancer, but the worst kind, the big bad kind, is the melanoma. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was probably a death sentence because we didn't have enough once it started to metastasize to know what to do about it. So these are some of the new medications that you're talking about that have really only been approved in the last three and a half years or so. It's really changed the landscape of how we treat melanoma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, drugs that are targeting specific genes um, and also just altering the immune system to enhance the immune system to help uh, patients against melanoma. Yeah, this is probably, um, melanoma is sort of the poster child for cancer immunotherapies. And cancer immunotherapy is probably the most uh, amazingly fast-moving area of cancer research right now. There have been a huge number of advances. At least two or three of the drugs Shane's mentioning that have been approved in the last few years are really aimed at, uh, at uh, helping the immune system fight off the cancer. Now, tell me what the term immunotherapy means. People are familiar with chemotherapy. They might be familiar with radiation therapy. What is immunotherapy? It, it's sort of a term that encapsulates a lot of different approaches to help your immune system target and, and the cancer. And so there are ways to do that. You, cancer actually uh, develops ways to evade the immune system, so meaning that the, it tells the, the, your immune cells, go away, don't bother me. But we can help uh, guide those immune cells to the cancers in various ways. And one way is we can amplify the immune response itself, and that's really the way that they've been doing this uh, in the last few years uh, with uh, some of the more recent drugs. And so it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, if you saw that, the movie, The, the uh, Emperor of All Maladies, they had a large uh, portion of that, epi- of that uh, series was focused on cancer immunotherapy. 
Well, I think it's the next wave of how we're going to treat tumors. I mean, I I firmly believe that 50 years from now, we're going to look back on some of our original chemotherapies that kill good cells, bad cells, and everything in between in an effort to cure cancer as, as somewhat barbaric. I mean, once we get to the point where we can identify the specific genetic mutations and specific receptors and proteins of your tumor, my tumor, anybody else's tumor, and we can target that, I suspect we're going to be even more successful than we already are at treating cancer. Now, tell me a little bit about this conference. So it's happening on Friday. It's open to the public. It's directed towards towards people, towards doctors, towards the public, towards melanoma cancer survivors. What sort of things might they learn if they attend on Friday? Well, you know, obviously uh, the, the latest and, and greatest uh, drugs that are being approved um, – you know, we're going to be having discussions regarding prognosis, the emphasis on early detection, uh, prevention. We have world experts coming, uh, Dr. Charles Balch. Um, we have uh, Dr. Brendan Curdy um, and, and other personnel there, including, you know, Dr. Ramos will be speaking, speaking uh, or there with, his, uh, with uh, Dr. Mater, both of the uh, UH Cancer Center, about, you know, what their role is as far as the science in melanoma. So, it's very exciting, you know. We've uh, merged the, the the sort of the the national uh, leaders with with you know our, our local mm-hmm. leaders here. Yeah, it's basically a local and a national perspective. So Dr. Balch will give the overview of what's happened in melanoma research over the last uh, few decades. Uh, Dr. Curti is going to focus a lot on the immunotherapy, so he's going to give us sort of a nice, really nice overview of what where cancer immunotherapy stands, especially for melanoma. Uh, melanoma. And then we have Karen Glanz, who's sort of a population-based scientist, and she's going to talk about preventative method, uh, measures one can take. So if you don't want to get melanoma, what you can do about sunscreen things. Sure, like absolutely. You know, we've had some dermatologists on recently talking about the different types of sunscreen, the blocking sunscreen, the chemical sunscreens. And, you know, I mean, basically, if you're going to go out, try and avoid too much sun exposure, because, you know, depending on your skin type, and I'm pale as pale can yeah, be. So is I. So there you I. go. So, you know, I'm going to turn into a red lobster if I go out around noontime. Yeah. So protect yourself, whether it be a physical barrier, whether it be a I'm inside barrier. You know, certainly prevention is really the key. Now, are there currently some different clinical trials going on at the Cancer Center looking at melanoma? I know that we've had folks on with the, with the Cancer Center coming and talking about all the amazing things they're doing and bringing these clinical trials mm-hmm. to the islands. Have we been looking at that with melanoma, or is that sort of the next phase, the next step? It's definitely um, the next phase as far as in- investigating initiative. We have some existing trials that are in, um, helpful for patients who have um, melanoma um, that, are, that are advanced, sort of looking at some combination therapies. Um, what I do want to also uh, remind everyone that uh, much sort of taking a step back, a lot of emphasis is on melanoma with the sun and UV radiation, but 10 to 15% of melanoma is not related to UV exposure. You can have mucosa melanoma, you can have uh, acromelanoma, we're going to have a patient testimony there. Um, and so this is just to educate uh, everyone and bring a- awareness that, again, although the sun is the culprit most of the time, you know, there are other 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 ways of, uh, you, you know, being afflicted with this cancer. Absolutely. I have to say I have patients who have unfortunately passed away of melanoma in the groin area, melanoma in the nasal cavity, places that are not exposed to the sun. So, you know, if you do have a growth and you can't see it and it's painful and bothersome, always go get it checked out because you never know 
exactly what that could be. Melanoma can be a deadly disease if caught too late. But some of these therapies that they're now developing sound like they really can give people a second chance. Yeah, and, and I think why this this our, our symposium is unique is this is the first time the UH Cancer Center has had this approved for CME so that physicians can, can come and join to you know, display that we are having a, a very collaborative relationship, and it's with the medical school and the physicians there um, are invited, as well as the as well as the public. You know, it's very important that the public uh, understand and, and we're transparent with what's going on. So they're having the same, you know, um, exposure to to what's out there um, currently, uh, the cutting edge, as what you know, our physicians and other healthcare providers. Will there be any people, any patient testimonials? Yes, uh, there's going to be a, a, a young lady who's going to be talking about her experience with uh, melanoma, and I think it'll be very captivating. And I think, you know, um, individuals would be, because of her, her youth, would be able to um, get, I think, a real, um, a, a different perspective, not always listening from healthcare providers and scientists, but it's nice to also hear uh, from someone who's experienced it. Well, I have to say, you know, we're all good at explaining stuff sometimes. But the most compelling stories generally are from people who have been through it and kind of walked that walk and can sort of, from their perspective, really share their insight. That's something that I always find invaluable, learning from somebody who's been there and done that. And so as good as we are at explaining stuff and educating folks, I don't know, I think sometimes, you know, the person that you're going to have talk, that patient who's been through that, that young woman, I think her story is probably going to be memorable for anybody who has a chance to hear it. So, uh, Dr. Joe, tell us again, if people are interested, how do they find out about it and how do they need to let you know they're coming and how long is it? When does it start? Give me the deets. Give me the details. (laughs) It starts at uh, 830 on Friday morning. Uh, You might want to show up a little before that. Uh, There will be a skin cancer screening going on. We have a dermatologist that will be on hand for that. Oh, really? So people can actually have somebody look Uh, at my weird mole and as long as it's in a publicly appropriate place. It will be in a a very appropriate place. I mean the mole. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm asking about the mole. mole. Gotcha. The mole's got to be somewhere we can see and not be uh, causing any trauma. The symposium lasts uh, until about 1.30, 2.30, that range, and – uh, you can go to the UH Cancer Center website, and you'll find out all the information you need on there. There's a nice flyer there describing everything in some detail. Lots of good information on the website, too. I've looked at it, and it really does help people to navigate what's going on right yeah. down the street, right in Kaka'ako. Right, and it'll let you know we have now added uh, very clearly on the front page the clinical trials that the Cancer Center sponsors as well. So if you want to go in and find out about what we're doing there, there's a little over 100 of them active right now. Excellent. So this Friday... Conference is coming. Do we have a Shane? Is there is there a title for it? It's insights in melanoma: a national and local perspective. Excellent insights in melanoma. So for anybody out there who's either had it, knows somebody who has, wants to learn more about it, or wants to know about some of these latest and greatest therapies, including immunotherapy, this is definitely a conference not to miss. It's going to be Friday at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center right down there in Kaka'ako, not that far from where we're sitting right now. And you can go to uhcancercenter.org and get more information. Dr. Morita? And again, we picked May because May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and the first Monday of every May is is a Melanoma Monday. So this is a prelude to recognize. Prelude to Melanoma Monday. Correct. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming here, talking about it. I know that both of you support 
the cancer center and also a lot of the work that they do, in addition to also helping take care of folks who unfortunately suffer from melanoma. So thanks to both of you for being here. And if anybody's interested in the conference, uhcancercenter.org, or you can always go ahead and and give the medical school a call or give UH Cancer Center a call and they can get you more information. But this Friday, May 1, starting around 8 o'clock, free skin cancer screenings in addition to learning about the latest in melanoma, insights into melanoma. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. I appreciate it. And thanks for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, here in Hawaii, there are about 400 people who are waiting to receive a kidney transplant. There are everyday people who could become real-life superheroes by becoming living kidney donors. Right here in the studio, we have Dr. Makoto Ogihara. He's a transplant surgeon at the Queen's Transplant Center, and he's going to share all about the kidney transplant process, including the benefits of living donations for kidney recipients, possible risks of donation, and the evaluation process of potential living donors. And then we're going to talk with a woman and her husband who have had that exact experience. She donated a kidney and he received it. So we're going to talk a lot about that today. If you or someone you love has ever had concerns about kidneys or on dialysis or on a transplant list and you're not quite sure what that whole process is, you're going to want to give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Dr. Okihara, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Kidney transplants, they happen right here in the islands. You do them. You did two on Friday. You probably did some other ones, I'm sure, hundreds of them before then. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process of of why we need to transplant kidneys. What's wrong with the person who needs the transplant, and how can this help them? About 0.1%, so one out of 1,000 general population, they eventually develop uh, what is called end-stage renal disease. That's a kidney failure. The kidneys just don't work anymore. That is correct. So when the kidney shut down, you stop making urine, and you get really sick. You can still uh, maintain life. You can still keep going by going on dialysis machine. There are two types of dialysis. You can do at home. You can go to the center. But that's not the most ideal or natural way to maintain your life. So people do uh, feel better and do much better on kidney transplant rather than being maintained on the machine. That's why kidney transplant is very important. So if you have kidney disease to the point where you need to do dialysis, you're what they call dialysis dependent, then one of the options if you want to do something other than dialysis that Actually, and again, when you think about it, our kidneys work 24-7. I mean, they don't take a break. So dialysis is really only giving you a certain number of hours of kidney function externally. So if you want to try and break free from the dialysis machine, or I would imagine improve your health overall compared to being on dialysis versus having a kidney, transplant is the way to go. That's right. This is how I usually explain to the patients who are starting on dialysis or thinking about kidney transplant, this may not be agreed on by all the uh, nephrologists who are the specialists in the kidney disease. But when we are born, uh, we are supposed to have 100% kidney function. And some some patients or some people with healthy lifestyle, they maintain the kidney functions. But when you age or when some disease uh, damage your kidneys, kidney functions go down. When the kidney function go down to... 
about 5 to 10%, you will feel really, really sick and you have to be on dialysis. When you receive new kidney transplant or new kidney from uh, somebody else, um, typically we have two kidneys. Kidney transplants, we don't do t- two kidneys at the same time. We, have only, um, we do only one kidney. But uh, one healthy kidney can give you about 50 to 60% of uh, normal kidney function. So by the time you're on dialysis, your kidney is only providing 5% of uh, function. After kidney transplants, you got the 50 or 60% of a function back. So you will feel much better. So it really helps you physically feel better, and it helps your body to get rid of some of the toxins, which is the, the reason why we have kidneys, is to filter things out. So for the person who is on dialysis, who receives a kidney, now goes from about 5% function to about 50 55% function, they can stop dialysis pretty immediately. Right. So kidney transplant, um, we can use a kidney from uh, deceased donors, and also we can use a kidney from live person who are willing to donate. So like the organ donor, if you're in a car accident, you have that little sticker put on your driver's license, and it says, are you an organ donor or not? So if you were to meet the criteria and you were no longer going to survive, that's what you mean by deceased person donating. That is correct. And so, or a live donor. Like we're going to talk with a woman and her husband and, you know, she donated her kidneys to to help her husband. Okay. Yes. So in that situation, what happens to the kidney function of the donor? Okay. So the donor, um, immediately after, right after they donate one of the kidneys, one of the two kidneys, they have to go through very strict uh, screening process to make sure everything is okay. Uh, after the kidney is donated, uh, their kidney function goes down to 50% because they lose one of the two kidneys. That's about 50% volume. But the uh, remaining kidney will start to work a little harder, and eventually uh, kidney function is going to go back to close to 80% of their baseline. So that, that one kidney can take over a lot of the job of two. That's right. So the person who donates gets about 80-some percent kidney function. The person who receives gets about 50-60% kidney function. And so overall, everybody seems to be a lot healthier, particularly the recipient, I would imagine. And the donor is still okay because they have enough kidney function to not need dialysis. That's right. So the uh, most advantage of doing a live donor kidney transplant is that recipient, uh, they don't have to wait long time on a deceased kidney transplant list. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Makoto Ogihara, and we're talking today about kidney transplants. There there are several hundred people on the transplant list right here in Hawaii, and since April is National Donate Life Month, we're going to talk a little bit about how you can help if you wanted to be part of the process of transplant. Now, you can always go ahead and give us a holler, and that's going to be at 941-3689, toll-free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. When we come back, we're going to talk with a woman who donated a kidney to her husband, and we're going to hear their story And if you've ever had that happen yourself or know somebody who does, we'd like to hear your story as well. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Someone was in the house. She didn't want to believe it, but there was no other explanation. Her whole body felt cold and she could feel her heart stuttering in her chest. A babysitter in peril. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI. Public Radio International. 
Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, Michael Titterton here. As you may be aware, our latest attempt to keep these radio stations of ours on the air for the next six months ended very happily at shortly past noon on Saturday. We'd begun the campaign with the idea that our listeners, rather than we, should determine the length of the campaign. And so you did. Ten days and six hours seems to be the consensus. Also, a little bit of drama toward the end. Now we get the picture. Looking forward to the next one, and thanks. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Makoto Ogihara. He is a transplant surgeon at the Queen's Transplant Center, and we're talking today about kidney transplantation. Now, before the break, we were reviewing a little bit about why someone might need a kidney transplant. If you or someone you love has been on dialysis and had a transplant, we'd love to hear your story. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877 877- Nine four one three six eight nine. Now, before the break, we were talking about Dr. Ogihara. We were talking about why do people have this problem? Why do why what happens to their kidney and they go on dialysis? And does this really make a difference? Now, I'd like to introduce Robin and Colin Kumabe. Thanks for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you. And Colin, tell us your story a little bit. You are the recipient, so you were having kidney problems. What kind of problems were you having? And how, what was that doing to you physically? How were you feeling? Well, um, I had a renal failure uh, in February of 2013 and um, uh, from dehydration. And so uh, my kidney function had already been um, at 17% due to diabetic complications. And so after that, um, they put me on dialysis and I, I chose uh, peritoneal dialysis. So for those of you who don't know what that is, that's the dialysis you do at home. It's not where you go to a, to a facility. So you were doing that at home, at night, daily? Uh, yes. Okay. That's correct. And um, you're basically put on a machine overnight. I did have to do one manual exchange, which is I had to hook up the bag, hook it onto my uh, catheter, and then do that exchange of fluid uh, okay. one time in the day, and then the rest was all by machine when okay. the machine was working for me. <laughs> so trouble sometimes when you're home alone and you're dealing with this machine, and if it doesn't work, I mean, you know, a lot of times we see people in the hospital, you hear beep, 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 because, you know, the nurses come running for their IV poles. Imagine if you're the only person in the room yeah. and you've got to figure out how to handle this machine. So so a lot of difficulties. So you were doing the, the peritoneal dialysis for about how long? Um, from February to September. So about of seven 2013, months. Two thousand thirteen, okay. yes. And what were you physically feeling when you had the kidney failure? What what sort of did you notice felt different? Well, um when I initially had the kidney failure, um, right before it I felt very, very sick. Um I started um just nauseated and then I started um I just started losing consciousness really. And so they took me to emergency, and that's when they had determined that I'd actually had a renal failure. 
So your and, kidneys just said that's it. Yeah, and so they We're they did working. rehydrate me, and I, it was brought up to about seven percent, which held me for a little bit while they got the um, catheter implanted and all of that. So we were talking, Doctor Doctor Ogihara, about you do dialysis when you get to that like five percent or so kidney function. Sometimes ten percent. They start making plans, and here Colin was down at seven. So that was with hydration. So he was kind of at the point where it's time to do dialysis. That is correct. I think uh, how many percents really depends on how quickly your kidney functions decline. Some patients are okay up to or down to three, two percent, but most patients will start dialysis. I think between five and ten percent. Okay, so Colin, so you were doing the peritoneal dialysis. At what point did transplant become something that you discussed? Robin, this is your husband. You're watching him go through all of this. It, was that a thought that came immediately, or did that take a little while to, to be something you guys discussed? Oh, it was immediate, especially when he was in the hospital. But uh, prior to that, we had discussed transplant, but originally I wasn't even uh, able to be on the list because I was on too many blood pressure medications. At the time, I was on three blood pressure medications. And so I was told that I was disqualified from even going through the process. But once he was in the hospital, um, I, I uh, talked to my, in, my doctor, and I said, you know, how am I going to get off of these blood pressure medications? I have to get on to one. I have to be down to one medication only. And so um, we worked on diet, exercise, you know, lowering stress level, and he got me down to one medication so that I was able to get on to the process of um, taking all the tests that I needed to do to to be able to donate my kidney. It's got to be, I mean, lower your stress. Your husband's in the hospital. He's about to start <laughs> dialysis. You're given this mandate, go from three to one now. <laughs> don't eat all the foods you like. Don't have any comfort foods. Exercise, and you've got to get on one one blood pressure pill. I, that, that level of stress, I just can't even imagine that, that you were able to handle it and do it. Well, so, yeah. so, But to see him in his, it was really terrible. I mean, he got depressed. Um, he's at home, you know, every four hours, really. When the machine wasn't working in the evening, he was changing. Doing um, the, doing manually the doing this dialysate exchange. And so, so yeah, but I mean, to me, that's like more stressful. And, <laughs> and you're like, but lower your stress. And yeah. I don't know how you did it. Okay. Yeah. So, so you were able to get down on medication. Now, uh, Dr. Okihara, what are some of the, what are some of the things that make somebody ineligible to be a donor? Because, you know, Robin mentioned she was on three blood pressure pills. So being on a lot of other medication must be one of the things that makes you ineligible. What are some of the obvious things that say, nope, you can't be a donor? Um, obviously, your kidney function has to be perfect. All right. So and if I, your kidneys don't work, don't be sharing them. Um, okay. Most people with diabetes, they will be declined. Okay. And overweight. Okay. And strong history of uh, family kidney disease. If so genetically, sure, genetically. if it looks like by the time you reach a certain age, grandma, grandpa, everybody had this problem, hey, you know what, you might not be a donor, okay. Or active kidney stones. Okay. So that's a fairly small selection of, of things that disqualify you. So with the blood pressure, it has to be well controlled on one medicine. That's right. That's the uh, consensus uh, right now. Okay. So Robin, you got there. Yes. You got on one medicine. It probably took mm -hmm. you a while. 
Well, um, the, I think the other thing to mention is that mo- my doctors had told me that because of hereditary, both my parents were had high blood pressure, that I would not be able to get down to one medication. But Did you yeah, prove them wrong? Right. Yeah. I feel did like you prove I did, us wrong? Yes. <laughs> you, did. you did, but you kind uh, of proved us right. <laughs> because yes. see, you proved us wrong saying, nah, I got on fewer blood pressure pills. But then, yaha, diet, exercise, and lowering stress does improve blood pressure. It does. So, it you works. know, you're living yes. proof. Well, Literally. Whole, yeah, I mean, the whole process, just, just the testing um, for both of us uh, was really important that we were in tip-top shape in our health, so we really had to change our lifestyle. Really, what, it's a what lifestyle did you change? change? Yeah, like what, what were some of the obvious things? I mean, there's no more chips in the house, <laughs> I'm sure. You know, nobody's going to McDonald's. Yeah. But was there one thing that you changed that you think made the biggest impact? I think just getting on a routine of, you know, eating healthier foods, really. Um, yeah, and the sla- snacking, drinking was a lot of water. exercise part of that, too? Exercise okay. is really important, yeah. So all of those things. But you know, the other big big issue that um, was Colin did not want me to donate my kidney. He didn't want anybody to donate kidney, their kidney to him because um, he thought that, you know, it was going to lessen um, our life and our lifespan. So uh, education and getting an understanding. I know Dr. Okihara really helped us in understanding that there is, you know, no real issue um, for the donor um, having kidney disease or any of those things. Um, The statistics, I'm sure he can share a little bit more about that, but it was very, uh, really helpful to have the educational component there. So Colin, you're a little hard-headed. I just can't imagine. Okay. So so you learned a little bit about the fact that it was possible. What were the reasons? I mean, why were you reluctant to have your wife be a donor? What well, was your big concern? The biggest concern um, was that I, they were healthy. My children had offered to donate. My wife had offered to donate. Um, they were healthy. And so, my, you know, thinking that, why would I have them lessen their chances in life or something like that to extend mine? You know, I I couldn't see it. That's, you know, I just couldn't see it. So after we had gotten educated. So what changed your mind? What was this education? What were the facts? Like what one thing made you go, okay, I think I could do it. That Robin could live her whole life. And it was statistically proven that it wouldn't affect her life. All right. And then I said, okay. Dr. Ogihara, you know the stats. You know the specific details. What I'm sure Colin's not the only person that was ever concerned about this. So what is this process? How do you educate folks about addressing this exact situation when you think, I don't want to take the the kidney from my loved one because I'm afraid that they're going to have troubles? What are those stats? Um, I, I usually tell the uh, both donor and recipient uh, this fact that the donor after donating one kidney they will live as well and as long so by donating kidney they don't live less 
amount of life or so they don't live worse. So you're not shortening your lifespan and you're not changing your quality of life. That's correct. I mean, keep your kidney healthy, keep your blood pressure low. If you develop diabetes as you get older and you're a kidney donor, make sure that you're really careful with your sugars. But, you know, in the absence of developing a kidney problem, they should live just as long as they would otherwise. That's right. Okay. So that was probably what convinced you, Robin, that, I mean, you were kind of convinced already. Yes. You were already trying to lead this stress-free life, which I give you a lot of credit for. <laughs> and so you were already on board. Yes. So once Colin got on board, this became something you were yes. going to do. Now, Well, it, the, the other thing is that I had to, um, the first, one of the first tests is to make sure that I matched right. as a donor. And I know um, Dr. Ogihara has some statistics about husbands and wives, too, and their chances of having a successful kidney kidney um, transplant, which is pretty amazing, too. All right. I want to know. Husbands and wives, kidney transplants. So generally speaking, kidney transplants from live person, live donor, uh, they tend to last longer. The kidney function tends to last longer compared to deceased kidney. Deceased kidney usually from stranger. Okay. And we have known that the kidney with a blood-related family member tends to last longer than strangers, friends. However, interestingly, the kidney from spouse uh, lasts as well, as long as the kidney from your family members. It's it's amazing. It's kind of a little freaky. (laughs) Right, because spouse, there is no blood relation. You would hope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if you are a match and the match being different antigens and certain things in the blood and in the body, then a donor from a family member Mm -hmm. and a donor from a spouse. Mm -hmm. They work as well. Great. I'm just going to absorb that. Wow. Okay. So, you know, know, in in sickness and in health, till death do us part, Mm -hmm. now we're not parting, have my kidney. I mean, truthfully, so it lasts as long as if it was a family member. That's right. Presuming the same level of match and everything else. Okay. So so you knew going into that that this could really change Colin's life. I mean, you've committed. Change both of our lives. To one another, exactly. <laughs> yes. And this would help both of you. So, okay. Yes. So at what point in the process? So, Colin, here you are. It's 2013. It's February. You're heading into September. And, and at what point did you receive the transplant? Uh, it was exactly September 13, 2013. That's kind uh, of an sorry, interesting... 23rd. 23rd. Up. Oh, wait. September I saw Robin go, no. Okay. So the 23rd, 2013. And did you immediately stop your peritoneal dialysis? Um, correct. They, in fact, they removed my catheter uh, from me at that time. So you had so. the transplant, catheter gone, that kidney, it's time to go. Yeah. And, and literally, you started to go. Yeah, and so um, from what I understand, as soon as I was hooked up, um, transplant-wise, it already was functioning. So I think that's, I'm not sure if that's why they made that decision. So how do you determine that? Do you just, I mean, literally, are you in the operating room? Are you saying, let's see urine, let's see urine? I mean, is that what you're, is that how you know? So, um, of course, the way kidney look after uh, we um, complete the surgical part, that's important too, but by statistic. Um, the kidney from stranger deceased donors they all work fine but because of the transport and some mismatch uh, initial function can be sluggish so about 20% of the kidney from deceased donor 
they will need to be support, supported by the uh, dialysis just for a short period of time. However, if you do a kidney transplant uh, from live donor, 99.5%, almost 100%, they work immediately. So surgeons, if everything goes well, they tend to take out all the dialysis-related ca- catheters uh, for live donors uh, at the same time. Now, why do you think that is? Is it just because the the person, the live donor, it's you know they're right in the operating room next door, or just the the lack of need for traveling time? What is there any explanation for that? I think when they go through brain death uh, process. Maybe some there's hormonal change and some impact to the uh, kidney function. And, of course, uh, brain-dead donors, they are dead because something was wrong. They are dead. Compared to that, live donors, they are there because they're health, healthy. They're health expert. That's why they are um, selected to be able to donate. So there's already a pre-selection process. Not everybody can say, okay, I'll donate a kidney. You've got to be, like Robin said, only one blood pressure medicine, if at all, no no problems with kidney disease, diabetes, any of those other conditions. You really have to not necessarily have that. That's right. So you're a very select population of healthy live people. Only certain people can be donors. Yeah, I had to get a clean bill of health. They checked everything um, for cancer. I mean, so many tests. And even, um, yeah, they, they check your mental health as well. Absolutely. I would think that would be part of it. Sure. Make sure that you're emotionally ready for Mm -hmm. this because there's a change. You know, I'm curious. What did you notice after the donation? You know, Colin said he felt better and, and, you know, he he had this, he no longer had to do this dialysis at home. Did you notice any physical changes? I felt better too. Um, It's amazing. Our health is just, it's, he's back to normal, you know, Um, so... I don't feel any less healthy. It's uh, but to have gotten down to you know one blood one pressure, blood pressure pill, med- sure. Yeah, I mean, I just it's it's a great feeling and and it, even better, you know, just knowing that I've been able to give a better quality of life to my husband and that we have, you know, we have um, time together. Really, it's wonderful. Well, and and talk about life saving. Yes, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is the best case scenario when you can when you can give your your kidney to someone you love who needs a kidney when you're a match when you're healthy enough to be able to do it it's just a unique opportunity that that you know I'm sure that you're both so grateful that you could be part of Colin that you could receive a kidney Robin that you could give a kidney and know that you know we were talking earlier before the show and you said it's one thing to be an organ donor on your driver's license. It's another thing to get a chance to see the impact that it has on someone that you love. Yes, to be able to donate your organ and be alive to to see the results of it is, it's just uh, remarkable. Uh, Yeah, I can't even explain the wonderful feeling that that is. Well, I won't try and put it into (laughs) words either if you can't, Robin. I'm going to give myself... Uh, a little break on that part. Okay. Well, speaking of a break, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We have got both Robin and Colin Kumabe, who are donor and re- and recipient of a kidney transplant, and Dr. Makoto Ogihara from the Queen's Transplant Center. He is a surgeon who performs this miraculous surgery. And when we come back, we're going to hear a little bit more about about the whole process. And if you or someone you love has ever 
thought about donating a kidney, how what sort of health do you have to be in and how does that whole process take place? You can join us at any time during our conversation at 941 941- 3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The Pentagon is deciding which combat jobs to open to women, but some women have already faced combat alongside elite special ops in Afghanistan. This one ranger said to me, these women paid their rent every single night. They went out there and they had heart and they had grit and they talked to people we couldn't have otherwise. I'm Renee Montaigne, Women of the Afghanistan War's cultural support teams on the next morning edition. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Greg Field uses poetry to connect with his grandfather's Potawatomi Indian roots, as in this excerpt from Passing. The pilot returns a hero in some other city. His medals and commendations never reflect the woman or the two half-breed kids. Greg Field reads from Blackheart and is joined by his book publisher, former Kansas poet laureate Denise Lowe, on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Here in the studio, we're talking today about kidney transplants. And I've got with me here Dr. Makoto Ogihara. He's a transplant surgeon at the Queen's Transplant Center. And also donor Robin Kumabe and recipient Colin Kumabe, who went through this process in September of 2013 as he had undergone an an episode of kidney failure and was on dialysis. And Robin's wife said, I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to be a donor. Now, there's different types of donations. And Dr. Ogihara, you mentioned that for a living donor, that's somebody who is otherwise healthy, has made select criteria that they have. They've passed through this whole selection process, and they're considered healthy enough to be a donor. And then you have a recipient who is somebody who has a kidney problem, kidney failure, on dialysis or nearing close to dialysis. How often do you as a surgeon see a situation where there's a family member who's a donor versus someone who is on a transplant list and has an unrelated donor or a deceased donor. What's the ratio there? So can you transplant? Um, Which do you see in your in your practice here in Hawaii? Right. So we'd like to see more living donors, but I think about 20% of the whole transplants are from living donors, and 80% uh, or even more are coming from the uh, brain-dead deceased donors. Is it because there aren't enough people who want to be living donors, or is the selection process just fairly strict? I mean, do you often have people who say, I'll be a donor, but they're just not age-wise they can't or medically they can't? I think there is a lot of interest uh, in the general population. However, about 10% of the people who are interested in donating their kidneys to their loved ones actually uh, qualify to be a donor. So out of all of those people that say, I'll do it, I'll give you my kidney, one in 10 actually could. Nine out of 10 probably don't qualify for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. That's right. So that makes the situation between the two of you, Robin and Colin, even more unique. So you have to 
first volunteer, then qualify. And, and again, I'm assuming that there's a whole matching process. We're talking about matching the different things that require that are required for having an organ transplant. Right. The most important po- uh, part of the matching is a blood type. Sure. If blood's going to go through, you got to have the same blood type. Uh, if you yes. don't, there's trouble. Right. The blood type has to be, doesn't have to be identical, but has to be compatible. Compatible. Okay. Yes. All right. So you guys are both compatible blood type, compatible in life, married. Not related. <laughs> Not that I have to renew that, but okay. <laughs> yes, and so so this is the process. Now, Colin, if you were getting a kidney from someone who was not related to you, would that have made you feel differently than getting a kidney from your wife? Definitely. In what way? Um, probably because there's not as much as of an attachment to that person, uh, whereas if it's a family member, somebody I know, um, I think it's much more difficult because, like I said, that my thinking is I'm impacting their lives. Sure, it's harder so, to receive that kind of a gift right. if you think there's any chance that in the future Robin would have any type of a kidney problem. Exactly. But, Dr. Ogihara, you dispelled that myth and said, actually, for healthy donors, it really doesn't happen. They generally do well. They oh, live yes. just as long. Okay. Yeah. And, and Robin, what made you think, I want to be the donor, instead of having your husband on a transplant list? Oh, the, I didn't even have to think about that. That's, that's kind you of automatic. You just thought about it now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Boy, no, um, two years, a year and a half later. I would never I want thought. him okay. yeah, I, to have to be on a list. Yeah, so it was, it was having to convince him. If you think about it, um, most people that need a kidney are not going to go ask somebody for their kidney. Um, it's really up to the person that has a healthy kidney or thinks that they have a healthy kidney to be offering it. And almost you have to be pushing it. Um, For me, when I went through the process, I was finished in about two months. Um, They say it takes maybe at least one month. It took me about two months to get to a place where they said, okay, you're on the list and you can um, go through surgery. But that spurred him to even try harder to get his himself, his his all of his tests and everything uh, done faster, so that we could get get that surgery going and he can get off of dialysis. So there's, the, for us, it was um, you know really spurring each other on to getting healthier and doing this um, so that we can we can get to that that goal of the transplant um, surgery. And Dr. Okihara, you talk. Robin's referring to a lot of the tests. What sort of tests in particular are we talking about? Uh, <clears throat> we have to we have to make sure kidneys are healthy. And so even Robin's after, kidneys. That's right. The donor's kidney healthy, have to be okay. healthy. So we measure. Uh, actually, we make the donor uh, collect the urine for twenty four hours, and then and we measure thing. the uh, what is called creatinine clearance. How much. Uh, filter function kidney has, and then that number has to be really, really good range. And the good range would be? 90 ml per minute. Okay. because Technical terms, sorry. Technical terms. No, no, that's good. Because when we look at it, some people will see their labs at home, and they see something called a GFR. Mm-hmm. It's a calculated number that comes in a lot of people's lab studies, and it says normal is anything above 60. So you you can't just pass this test. You have to ace it. You've got to be in the 90s. That's right. Okay. So you do your 24-hour urine collection. Again, a thrill for that one, but you do it. And and you check to see if you have that clearance value of like, you know, an A. 
an A plus or so. So your kidneys are good. That's one test you have to do. What are some of these other tests? Robin says it took a couple of months. Okay. Why is that? So we have to make sure the blood type are compatible first. And after that, uh, you have to go through a lot of blood tests, make sure that you don't have any abnormal liver functions or low blood counts uh, or any type of infection. Uh, and, and she mentioned cancer screening, that's too. That's right. And kidney stones. And final, and then you have to go through the mental health uh, screening, and you will meet the pharmacist, uh, social workers, and make sure you know, we are not missing any um, uh, parts uh, of the whole system. The final Test is CT scan. Just make sure anatomically or technically surgeon can safely uh, remove your kidney. Kidney typically has one artery, one vein, and one what is called ureter. That's the shishi pipe that connects the kidney to the bladder. Uh, some patients, not abnormal, has more than one arteries or veins, and that may uh, disqualify you from donating. So you go through this whole process, and then you've got to, I mean, obviously you've got to check the anatomy so that you know exactly what the process is going to be when you do the surgery. So so you have to go through these different tests. That's why it takes several months. That's right. And most donors are working people, uh, so it's hard to do this just only within a couple of days. Usually it takes about a month. Sure, because you have to schedule appointments, take time off from work, do all these sorts of activities to be able to qualify. Now, from when you, from when you qualify, let's just say, as this happened, Robin and, and Colin, yes. you qualified. Were you working at the time? Yes, yeah, so I was working. You were working. Time. Colin, you I, were busy doing dialysis yeah, all day. Yeah, I wasn't able okay. to work. Yeah. Okay. So how soon after the transplant did you as the donor find yourself able to go back to, go back to your job? Oh, um, fairly quickly, actually. Um, but it depends on what type of job you have. For me, I'm a consultant, and so, yeah, it, it wasn't like I was doing heavy lifting or rigorous type. So you of have, activities. like, an office sort of activity mm-hmm, at your mm-hmm. job. Yeah. So you were able to go back fairly quickly. What does that mean? Oh, within one month or so. Within about yeah. a month or mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were able to go back to work, go back and do all the activities that you were previously doing. Yes. Do you feel healthier now since you've since you've done this? I mean, obviously, donating a kidney is not meant to make somebody <laughs> feel healthy, but meeting the criteria to be able to yes, really I've, just sort of jump-started or kick-started your, yeah, your health program. I, I feel a lot healthier. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't usually get to take all of those tests to, to get the clean bill of health, so I think that's actually an asset is being able to have the CT scans, the MRIs, I mean, all of these things that you'd normally have to actually pay for. But, you know, because um, I'm donating my kidney, um, those tests are all taken care of by the insurance company. Well, yeah, and they actually see more than just, they don't just see your kidney. You get get to know your pancreas is looking good and, you know, your liver looks good and, hey, your spleen's looking fantastic. So you do get some, some... other images of other organs that, yes, in addition, yes, plus you have to make benefit. sure sure some of mm-hmm. these organs are healthy before you can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's been about a year and a half now. Do you guys celebrate the anniversary of the kidney donation? Yes, we did. We definitely did. Every year. Yeah, well, it's only been one year so yeah, far, but yeah. So. Hopefully so for another 50. Yeah, oh. well, and then our kids. You know, our kids, by the way, were so helpful in um, right after surgery because both of us, you know, were out that's true. Um, Both mom and yes, dad need some help and now. I sure. know it was a pretty scary situation for them, but all three of our kids 
just rallied around us and took care of the things that we we needed taken care of and uh, took us to our appointments and things like that. How old were your kids at the time? Oh, my kids are actually, they're fairly old. They they were, what, 32, 30, and 28. Okay, you say fairly old, (laughs) and everyone in this room is feeling just a little bit worse. (laughs) Thank you. But okay, older children. They were adult adult children. children. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. I feel a little better. <laughs> All right. So they were able, really stepped up to the they plate and up, helped yes. out, particularly mm-hmm. after the surgery. Mm-hmm. And Colin, I'm curious, do you feel as healthy now as you did prior to the whole kidney dialysis episode? Well, um, just to kind of go a little back, the reason why I had that that kidney failure was because of my diabetes, okay. which we discovered um, 20 some odd years ago and had declined my kidney function. And so after I got the kidney transplant, I mean, it's really, you're looking at a new lease on life. And so I had to really look at how I even took care of the diabetes because that's actually what actually did it, that so caused that to happen. were you on insulin prior to the transplant? Yes, I okay. was. So insulin was part of your routine. Yes. It had already been determined that you needed that for your diabetes. Correct. Okay. So, and that's going to be lifelong, that, sure. that battle. but. I'm a little smarter now, so... Um, you have her kidney. You're a lot smarter now. Well, yeah, and so yes. I don't want to disgrace that gift, so <laughs> I my A1... Not my A1C. Yeah, yeah my A1C, A1C is yeah. 6.2. Fantastic. And so that's um, a really good number, you know, considering sure. it used to run in the sevens um, before, which is a little high, and that's what causes that degradation of the organs. Sure, the so. A1C is a three-month average blood sugar value, it's measured in a percent, and you want that percent to be as low as possible. Diabetes is when it's about six and a half or higher. When you're in that borderline category, you're about 5.7, 6.4, and non-diabetic is below 5.7. So for someone who's had diabetes for 20 or so years, having your number go to 6.2 is is pretty awesome. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, but that started when we we were... um having to prep for that surgery because she was um, on pretty much had changed her diet. And so I also, um, unfortunately, the diet for diabetes and diet for dialysis is really a hard one. Contradictory. It's contradictory. It's almost like, what can you eat anymore? Uh, Because for diabetes, right, you're told don't eat a lot of carbohydrates. And for dialysis, you're told be careful with your proteins. And you're like, What's left, people? Lettuce. Lettuce and three ounces of chicken or turkey. Three (laughs) meals a day. Pretty much is what it was. There you go. Okay. So fairly restrictive, but also lowers your blood pressure. Because as you saw, Robin, your Mm -hmm. blood pressure came down quite a bit because you needed it to. Yes. Yeah, definitely. In order to qualify. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Dr. Ogiara, what are some of the, what are some of the things that you encounter on a daily basis when you look at situations where you have someone who is is a donor or even someone who's just needing to be a recipient, what are some of the challenges that you face as a surgeon in this whole process? I mean, we've heard from Robin and Colin, and they've, they've really illustrated how difficult this was personally for them. What are some of the other challenges that happen medically that we might not think about, but you as a surgeon have seen enough people go through this scenario that, you know, you can help counsel them about some of the consequences or some of the changes that they need to make. I mean, you know, Robin and Colin did a great job watching the diet, watching the exercise. 
helping keep themselves healthy. What are some of the challenges you see? I think uh, renal failure is a very common problem, especially in the state of Hawaii. Unfortunately, the kidney transplant is, generally speaking, more ideal than staying on dialysis, but not everybody on dialysis qualify for kidney transplant because of their other, let's say, heart disease or other conditions, infection, um, age, uh, that sort of thing. Is there a limit? Is there an age where, I mean, because it's funny, because we we talk so much about how healthy the donor has to be. We didn't really talk so much about how healthy the recipient has to be. Right. So, again, kidney transplant tends to uh, make you better life, longer life. But to go through a kidney transplant, you have to have a healthy uh, heart and lung situation. So, typically, if somebody comes in... uh, interested in kidney transplant as a recipient, if the patient is older than, let's say, 75, we have to be cautious because we don't want to shorten their life by uh, trying and then having a complication after transplant. Sure. Surgery is is a big deal. It puts a lot of stress on your body, not just emotional stress, but physical stress. So they have to be, the, the person who is on this transplant list has to be healthy enough to undergo that stress and survive. Right. If they've got a bad heart, their heart may not be able to support this this whole new process and the surgery, so they might not be a candidate. So, okay, so finding the people who are on dialysis who qualify. And then is there are there enough kidney donors available here in the islands? Uh, the answer is no. So the... The state of Hawaii, about 400 patients are on the waiting list for deceased kidney uh, donor. However, uh, we we have about 40 brain dead donation every year in the state of Hawaii, and not all the donors have healthy kidneys. So we have used about 50 to 60 kidneys um, every year for the last couple of years, which means. Um, 400 patients waiting, but you only have 50 to 60 kidneys available every year from the the state of Hawaii. So average waiting time would be about five years. And the reason that we need to really focus on transplants done here is because transplanting from somewhere else, just the time element, getting the kidney here, that can affect the kidney's viability. It might not work once it gets here. That's right. And also um, uh, we call this allocation system. The kidney, which is um, recovered from a state, then they tend to uh, go to the uh, recipient who is waiting on the state, in the same state, so that the kidney doesn't have to travel long distance. Well, and it's kind of easy here in Hawaii. That's right. You know, because we've got to keep it. We're in the middle of the ocean, but I imagine that could be fairly contentious, contentious or difficult in states that are closer together. Boy, I want I, I can't even believe the time has flown so quickly. I want to thank both Robin and Colin Kumabe for sharing your story and being brave enough to talk about this whole process and the journey that you took. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Ogihara, thank you again. Dr. Makoto Ogihara is a transplant surgeon at the Queen's Transplant Center. 
and you save lives. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. We need more of you. We need more donors, too. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also follow the links, find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.